Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. So we're nearly there. It's nearly Christmas. Nearly. What I want to say to you today about the Christmas time is there's more to the story. There's more to the story. Because you see, the nativity has been reproduced and reinterpreted and depicted and recited and adapted in every way imaginable. It's been sanitized into a slick nativity pageant. Mary in blue satin, shepherds with tea towels on their heads, little baby sheep with tails. And what we've done over the years is that all the elements of the story have been jammed together into one picture so we can fit it on our Christmas cards. The nativity has become a commodity. And over the last 2,000 years, it's become even more of a commodity. My question is, what's real about the story? What's not? Let's watch this video. Thank <laughs> you. 
or you just all go home now, eh? Um, the nativity. About this time of year or a little bit before we start to get the characters out, wise men will actually leave them because actually they didn't turn up until Jesus was about 12 months old. Sorry to bust your bubble. Um, Joseph, yep, he was definitely there. Mary, of course, carrying the Christ child. Uh, we've got a cow, probably there. Donkey, oh, now, <laughs> donkey. A few weeks ago, when I was preaching, I put the donkey amongst the pigeons, so to speak, when, uh, when I said that, in passing, that actually the donkey's not even in the story. And I had people searching their Bibles, which I love. I had people checking. I'm sure there's a donkey in the story. There's always been a donkey in the story. Mary rode a donkey. Didn't that happen? I had people texting me, asking me if they should rip the donkey out of their nativity set. Um, I had other people offering me alternatives. It might not have been a donkey. It could have been a three-legged camel. You know, three legs, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, whatever. Okay. Now, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that Mary may have ridden a donkey, but I'm going to talk about that a little bit in a minute. We've got the baby Jesus. We've got some sheep. They were probably there. Beautiful. And we've got, oh, shepherd. Lovely. Lovely. My question is, are there things that we believe about this Christmas story that have become part of our traditional retelling of it year after year after year after year after year that are actually inaccurate, that actually aren't the truth and actually hide the beautiful message that's there? See, things have been added to the story that are not facts. They're myths. And a myth is this. It's going to come up on the screen. Is anything on the screen at all? Oh, there we go. Myth. A widely held but false belief or idea. So like I said a few weeks ago, I caused a bit of a stir by saying there's no donkey in the story. But every pageant you ever see, Mary's riding the donkey, right? It actually, so I mean, how has it become part of our traditional retelling? It actually comes from a novel, a second century novel, called, you won't even remember this, The Protevangelium of James. Sounds like a riveting read. But this book was written by a non-Jewish author, and he was retelling the Christmas story in an imaginative way. And the story has some really weird stuff in it, eh? But one of the small details in the story is that Mary was riding the donkey. And that's where it came from. None of us have read that book, have we? But that one little detail has crept into our traditional understanding of the story to the point where we now believe it to be true. Even though when you go back and read the two main passages in the Bible that talk about the nativity, there's no mention. And that's not the only myth in the Christmas story that we've come to believe is truth. Has time and drama added stuff to the nativity that actually just isn't even there? 
You know, it's so hard to think about something we know so well in a different way. I remember a few years ago, um, there was a stir when a couple of students did some tests on Ribena. We've always believed that Ribena, black currants, chock full of vitamin C, right? Good for your kids. I gave it to my kids when they were little. Vitamin C, they need it. Keep healthy. Then these two students did a test and discovered that actually there was little or no vitamin C in Ribena at all. What we'd come to believe to be true actually ended up not being true. It was a myth. They had to pay three million bucks too for their mistake. Tell your neighbour, there's more to the story. Tell your other neighbour, you've only heard the half of it. Now, I know, those of you that love Christmas out there, you're starting to get a bit nervous. You're starting to sweat a little bit. You're starting to squirm because you are thinking she's about to kill Christmas. Everything I've ever believed about Christmas is about to go up in smoke. I'm going to have to go home and have a sacrificial burning of my nativity set. I want to say to you, don't do that. Don't put any posts on Facebook saying, Shelley made me do it. Because, man, if you walk away from today thinking that I've killed Christmas for you, then I've failed in the most spectacular way possible. Like something that is tarnished and needs a good polishing to come back to its brilliance, so the Christmas story has become tarnished over the years, and we're going to polish it up this morning so that it comes back to its original brilliance. I just think that the Christmas story has just had this dull, um, dark, rejection-y kind of thing over the top of it for so many years. And I think we need to like really look at that closely and give it a really good polish so that we can really clearly see the beauty and the majesty and the brilliance of God sending his one and only son to earth. That's not a myth. That's for real. So turn to Luke 2, chapter 2. It's a classic Christmas passage. We're going to revisit it today, but we're going to do it with fresh eyes and with accuracy. And we're going to do some Christmas myth-busting. All right, so if you're ready for that. Three things I just want to get clear before we dig into things. <clears throat> First is the context of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 should come up on the screen. This is what Luke wrote at the beginning of his um, gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So when Luke was writing down the details that we're going to read in a minute in chapter 2, Luke was a Greek doctor. Doctors by nature and training are detailed and accurate and like to keep things in order. Steph, are you here? Is she out with, yeah, she's out with Massive. She would agree with me. Here's the other thing you need to understand about Luke. He says he got eyewitness accounts. It's more than likely 
that his primary source for the story that we're about to read in Luke chapter 2 was Mary herself, the mother of Jesus. So side note, if there'd been a donkey, Mary might have mentioned it. Okay? Got it? All right. So context is so important. Why was Luke writing? Because he wanted people to understand and make sure it was orderly, that it was accurate, like doctors do. Second thing we need to really get a grip to grips with before we dig into it is culture. The story of Jesus' birth is set in first century Middle Eastern culture. We view it through our modern Western eyes, which is quite natural and normal. It's where we live. It's what we know. But by doing that, we miss some of the really important cultural details and norms that people living back in the day would have just taken for granted. The culture Jesus was born into was very different to ours today. Very different. Have any of you ever lived in another culture different to the one that you grew up in? Becky, your hand should be flying up. (laughs) In the islands, I read you. I lived in another culture for three years in Fiji. Took a while to get used to and understand. It was normal. their, Their culture was normal to them, but not to me. I remember once I was coming on a bus back from Nandi back to Suva, and I happened to sit, uh, see one of our pastors there. And so we sat next to each other just having a chat on the way back. And he was wearing quite a bright sort of buller shirt, you know, wow, buller shirt. And I just said quite innocently, I just said, oh, it's a really nice shirt you're wearing. Didn't think anything else of it. Went back to Suva. A couple of days later, this brown paper package arrived in my office. And I opened it up. You know what I'm going to say, Becky, don't you? And here was the shirt. And I was really confused. I was like, why has he sent me this shirt? I don't get it. So I went and asked somebody, and they said, oh, in Fijian culture, if you admire something of someone's, they will just pick it up or take it off or whatever and give it to you. It's a beautiful thing about the Fijian culture. They don't hold on to stuff. It's not important to them. They'll quite easily give it away. I didn't understand. Another time I was driving in a car with um, some Fijians and I had, it was hot, man, I had the air conditioning on and I was driving along and all of a sudden someone in the back said, Shelly, can you turn the fridge off, please? I was like, what? The fridge, the fridge, the air con, the air con, can you turn it off, please? I was like, okay, cool. So I turned it off. I had no idea what they were talking about. And then they said, Shelly, we know a cross cut. We know a cross cut to where we're going. I'm like, What? Crosscut, crosscut, we know another way, shortcut, got you. It took so long for me to understand what's normal to them, not normal to me. What was normal to Jesus and his culture back then is not normal to us, so we've got to sort of unpack all that. And the last thing, so context, culture, and then control. A few weeks ago, I preached from Galatians 4.4 about when the time had fully come, God sent his son. God was precise and painstaking and patient and perfect with his plan. It just doesn't make sense to me that at the end of all of that planning, 800 or so years, sometimes more of prophecy and stuff, at the end of that planning, suddenly when we get to the time when Jesus is about to be born, everything falls apart. And God suddenly loses control. It just doesn't make sense from everything that we see God doing. Some, it's like some circumstances take over when it comes to the birth. And I just, I'm just not sure that that's true. It doesn't really line up for me. 
from what I see of how God functions and operates. So we are going to, I'm going to limit myself to four good myth busts this morning. I honestly could talk for hours on this. I won't because I'd like to actually get to Christmas, and you would too, I'm sure. But I'm going to limit myself to four good myth busts. You know, I've never heard anyone preach this. I've been in church a long time. I have never heard anyone preach this. And I haven't just come across this in the last week. All right, I have been studying this and looking into this for about three or four years. Okay, so what I'm about to share with you now is not just pie in the sky stuff. It's not just pulled out of nowhere quickly. This has come from considered study and thought and, and, and putting all the pieces together. So are you ready? That was just the introduction. <laughs> Ooh, here we go. Let's go. First myth to bust, the return. What we traditionally believe is that because of the census, Joseph was coming back to a place, to Bethlehem, that he didn't know well, that he was a total stranger in. That's what we believe traditionally. But there's more to the story. Tell your neighbor, there's more to the story. Let's read the first four verses of Luke. Luke chapter 2, 1 to 4. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judah, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. It is true that Joseph was returning to his village of origin. Maybe he was born there. Perhaps. We don't know that for sure. But what we need to understand is that Joseph was royal. He was from the line in the house of King David. He was royal. And in that culture, all he would have had to say when he turned up is, I am Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi, and most, ta- most homes in that village would have been open to him. Instantly, they would have known who he was and how he fitted in the lineage back to David. Um, when I lived in Fiji, um, one year that I was there, the last year that we were there, Tiko took me to his village, Nodo. Just look at my Fijian friends over there. Nodo. And he took, uh, it's the only time I've ever been there, and he took me there. And when we got there... Obviously, Tiko didn't grow up in Nodo. His father did a little bit, but then came to the city, but um, didn't grow up there. So when we got there, all Tiko had to say to the people in the village was, I'm Tiko, son of Sinovalati, son of, who was your dad's dad? Jesse, son of Jesse. And instantly, I, I remember it clearly, instantly the people in the village went, oh, son of Alati, oh, like this, welcome, welcome, come, have some juice, have some tea, have some food, let me take you on our boat up our river, you know, all this sort of stuff. It was just like the moment we announced who he was, we were in. And it's exactly the same for Joseph, and we miss this because we look at this through Western eyes. We don't operate like this in our society. In Middle Eastern culture, to turn someone away who was related to you, or in this case, related to the line and house of King David, would have brought unspeakable shame on the entire community. Shame. They would never have done it. 
So the myth is that he returned to nothing and no one and no one knew him. The truth is there was relationship and there was lineage. First myth busted. Just say, she busted that first myth. All right, second myth to bust. The rush. What we traditionally believe is that they arrived in Bethlehem at night, Joseph and Mary, and everything was done in a screaming hurry because she was about to pop, drop, pop, drop, right? She was about to give birth. And Joseph had done a terrible job at planning ahead. (laughs) Terrible. And they get there and everything is like, quick, 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 quick. We've got quick, quick. It's a rush. You know, sometimes babies do come in a hurry. One other time, and I've got lots of Fiji stories today. One other time in Fiji, it was about 1.30 in the morning, my phone rang. And it was my pastor. And he said to me, Shelley, Rachelle's gone into labor. We've called a taxi. They're not coming. Can you come? We've got to get her to the hospital. It's her fourth baby, right? And I said, okay. So I get out there. I had to get my cars in first. I'd get my wake up my landlords and get the car, got the car out, got around to their place. Here she is at the bottom of the driveway, screaming. And so they put her in the back of the car. So I'm driving and grandma is behind me at the, at the feet end and Barry is at her head, holding her head in the back seat, right? And I'm driving to the maternity unit thinking, God help me, which way is it? Like, I was, this is, and she was screaming in Fijian, my baby's coming, my baby's coming, my baby's coming. And I was like, oh my God. So I got to the maternity and I was just pulling into the road where the entrance to the maternity annex was. And she said to me, Isa Shelley, sorry, I'm going to have my baby in your car. <laughs> and, and I literally, 10 seconds later, pulled up in front of the maternity annex and I got out of my car and I came around and I looked and here's grandma holding this little baby, like probably going, what the flip just happened? <laughs> Sometimes babies come in a rush, right? But that detail actually comes from that second century novel, the Protoevangelium of James. Here it pops up again. See, we think Jesus was born the night he arrived. That's what we've been told every single time we hear it. But, oh, and so therefore Joseph accepts any shelter. I'll take anything. She's about to give birth. I have anything. Right? So in this story, the Protoevangelium of James, the whole story is set the night they arrive in Bethlehem. That's where that detail comes from. And as they approach Bethlehem, Mary says to Joseph, get me off this donkey. The baby is pressing and wants to come forth. AKA, I'm about to give birth, right? So Joseph leaves Mary in a cave nearby, right? And he rushes off to get a midwife. This is the story. Kid you not. And when they get back to Mary, him and the midwife, Mary's already had the baby. How convenient. And then the story just gets really weird from there, so I'm not going to tell you any more. All right? But traditional Christmas pageants reinforce this rush thing every single time. But there's more to the story. Verse 4 of Luke chapter 2. While the, I'm going to read it to you in the New King James Version because it says it a little bit clearer and a little bit better. While they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. While they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. 
You see, rush doesn't square with God's careful planning, does it? It doesn't. Prophecy 700 years before it happened, and then at the last minute, God doesn't drops the ball, and it's all a big rush and unplanned, and God doesn't know when Jesus will be born. Rubbish! That's rubbish. They were maybe there a day or two before the baby was born. There was no rush. Myth busted. All right, the myth is there was a rush. The truth is it was right on time. God knew exactly when Jesus was going to come. Now, she just busted another one. That's two down. All right, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I can read your minds this morning. If that's true, then what about this business of no room at the end? Verse 7, it says, because they had to wrap them in cloths and line a manger because there was no room at the inn. I'm glad you asked. You didn't, but you're asking in your head, I know, so I'm going to answer it for you anyway. Third myth to bust, the rudeness. We traditionally believe, like there was a big no vacancy sign flashing. Joseph knocks on the innkeeper's door, some urgency. Dude, help me out, my wife's about to give birth grumpy innkeeper. How many times have you seen this? Rudely says, no room, get lost. Sends them away. Then he has a change of heart. He feels sorry for them. And so he says, oh, look, I've got a stable out the back. You can use that, all right? There's more to the story. Tell your neighbor. There's more to the story. When the King James Version, which was the first version of the English Bible that was available to most people, was translated, the word that's used here for in was translated in English as in, I-N-N. And it's stuck. It's stuck since about 1500. Because when I say the word in, what do you think of? Yeah, like a motel or a hotel or something like that. But back at this time, in Bethlehem, and around this area in Judea, inns were generally on Roman roads, like in the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Good Samaritan gets, I mean, the Jew gets beaten up, Good Samaritan takes him to the inn. That's the kind of inn that we normally associate with this. But the word inn here is the word katalima, katalima. And it actually means, it doesn't mean a hotel motel, it actually means guest room. Guest room. Same word Luke uses when he describes where the Last Supper is. It was in a katalima, a guest room, an upper room. Luke would assume as people read the Greek that they would understand. We don't, because we don't read Greek. And there's been some dumb translations over the years. Thankfully, a lot of the Bibles that are coming out now have picked up this idea and are getting the right word in there. But it's, man, this is so stuck in our brains, eh? It is so part of our traditional retelling of Christmas. It's really hard to think of something different. Here's what houses in the first century looked like. They were just simple structures. There's numbers up there. I'm going to go through them with you so you can see. The first thing, number one, was the main room. You can see it's on that 
upper level there. This is where they cooked and ate and slept. This was where the family was. They would roll up their mats during the day, roll them out at night to sleep on. The second thing, number two, is that lower level where the door is. That's the stable. That's the stable. The stable was part of the house. And what happened is that most peasant families had one, two, three, four maybe animals. And at night they would bring those animals in via that door into the stable to keep the house warm. And so their animals didn't get pinched. Right? And then when the day came, they would take the animals out again. The third thing that you'll see up there, number three, is those little holes in the bottom of that upper level. Those are the mangers. They were carved out of the, the, um, the earth or whatever, the, the rock or whatever it was built out of, the floor. They were just carved in there like dips. And the hay was put in there. And the animals would come in and eat from the hay. Some houses had a second room. That's number four. Sometimes on the side like that, that's the katalima. Okay, katalima, that's it there. Sometimes that was on top because these were flat-roofed things. Not like our houses. This is where culture really comes in, eh? Because we don't think of houses like this. Let me show you the second picture. It kind of gives you a bit more of a an idea of what it looked like. So there it is. You can see the animals in the stable eating from the manger, that first level and the katalima up the top on this picture. That's what a first century house looked like. So, if the guest room was full, which is what was said, our katalima is full. Why didn't they just get someone to move? it was full because in those days to ask someone to move to make room for someone else was socially unacceptable couldn't do it so the guest room was full there's no room in our katalima but we'll find you space because you're from the line of David and for us to turn you away would be really dishonorable and shameful to our family now stop the presses shocker shocker I'm about to like really like mess with your heads It doesn't say anywhere in this text that they were in a stable. That's why I didn't bring my stable this morning, because I didn't really want to mess with your heads, but I am messing with your heads. There's no stable. Doesn't say they're in a stable, just says Mary put them in a manger. What if Mary was up on that first level? giving birth, and all she did was just lean over, put Jesus in the manger. Maybe she was down in the stable, I don't know, but it doesn't say. The manger, not in a dark place away from everybody else, the manger was in a warm and friendly house, not a cold, lonely stable. Myth busted! I just did it again. That's number three down. The myth is rudeness. People went, nah, no room. Go away. We don't want you. Truth is, there was room and there was respect. Right, how are you all doing? 
One to go. Last myth. This is about the rejection. In our traditional retelling, Mary and Joseph rejected by the innkeeper, no room at the inn, so they take their only option, a dark, stinky stable, and there, alone and rejected, Jesus is born. No one else is around. Mary and Joseph are left completely alone to figure it out for themselves. And the story gets so dark and makes for really good dramatic suspense. Just like, have you ever read a novel and then you've gone to see the movie and been disappointed? Why? Because when they make the movie, they'll add stuff in, they'll take stuff out, they'll jam time together, they'll do all that stuff to make it more dramatic. And that's what's happened to the nativity over the years. Stuff's been added in, stuff's been taken out, stuff's been jammed together to make it more dramatic. But there's more to the story. In every culture, women about to give birth were given special attention. Even in our culture today, still like that. But in this culture, simple rural communities had no hospital, there was no maternity unit, Women assisted other women to give birth. Now we know that Joseph and Mary were in a home with others. They weren't by themselves. It doesn't make sense that when the time came for her to deliver her baby, that she was left alone. Mary was probably only 14 or 15 years old. This was her first baby. There is no way, no way in this, in this um, first century culture that the woman in that village would have left her alone to give birth herself or leave Joseph in the room, to be fair. It's only up until the 1960s, maybe, where women, even in our culture, where men were, out you go, this is woman's work, we'll let you know when the baby's born. I reckon Joseph and the dudes and everyone else in the house were sent outside, go and stand by the fire, we'll let you know when, when the baby's here. And after the baby was born, it was wrapped and placed in the manger, filled with fresh straw and covered with a blanket. Right there beside her. Now I want you to really think about this, because we don't think about this enough. The people that were there helping her give birth... They didn't know that this baby was the Messiah. We know. We've read the story. But they didn't know. Joseph and Mary did not rock up to Bethlehem going, Parents of the Messiah, let us in. Flash, 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 flash. They were still coming to terms with it themselves about the miracle that was inside her womb. Those people didn't know. That midwife didn't know that she was delivering the Son of God. How could she have possibly known that? I think rather than Jesus being born, the way we've told it traditionally, you know, the lonely, rejected, all that stuff, I think we've, we've lost, we've lost the beauty the simple profoundness of a baby being born into a community. 
of love and care being shown to that child. I found this beautiful artwork, this picture, that I just think is just so lovely. You know, yesterday we were at um, Dianunis to celebrate Emma Woodlock's first birthday, and there were babies everywhere. Like, what a fertile church we are, <laughs> all right? There were babies everywhere. And I got the chance to hold Timothy, who's what, now four weeks old? Five weeks old. And as I sat there, knowing I was preaching on this this morning, as I sat there holding this little dot of a fella and looking at him and thinking, and then looking at Simeon and going, how is he ever that small? (laughs) Yeah. Do you know what I sat there thinking? And I looked around at all the people at this first birthday party, all the people who are involved in helping raise Emma. I looked around and I went, this is it. This is community. This is love. This is care. And this little baby, it came to me again. Jesus left the glories of heaven and all the power that went with that. And he came as a helpless baby who can, can't, can't do a single flipping thing for himself. It's truth. It's truth. So myth busted, right? The myth is the rejection. Cold, lonely, alone. She gives birth. The angels sing, whoa. And no. They were received. They were accepted into a community that had cultural norms for looking after people. And Jesus was shown love and care. And so were Mary and Joseph. God knew exactly what he was doing, man. Jesus was born into humble circumstances for sure, but he was born into community. And it's true to say, I think, that unless you have been shown love as a child, it is very hard to give love as an adult. Jesus was part of a community. He was loved. He was accepted. And that made for when he was an adult, that he was actually able to show that to other people. That was the human part of him. So, can I show you one last thing? It's not myth-busting, but it does add a final layer of proof to what I've been saying this morning, if you need any more. Because in the next part of the text, there's a beautiful picture and detail that most of us miss. And it's the shepherds. Shepherds were close to the bottom of the social scale, lowly, uneducated types. That's true. They were seen as unclean. And they were the first, the first, besides Mary and Joseph, the first to hear the message that the Messiah had been born. We're going to read from verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified, understandably. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news 
that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Saviour, Christos is the word. The anointed one, that's what it means. A Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom His favour rests. When the angels left and had gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Pastor Steve Graham was here a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about joy. And he said, Jesus, this was what he said, Jesus entered the world on a high note of jubilation. And there are more normal circumstances around Jesus' birth than we've ever come to believe. They go and visit the child. Now, when they were told about this child, from their point of view, if this child was truly the Messiah, their parents would reject the shepherds. They were lowly, they were unclean. It's the way the culture worked in those days if they tried to visit. But the angels anticipate them. And so they give them two signs to look for. First, the baby will be wrapped in swaddling clothes. It's the old language. Which is what peasant people did, like the shepherds, with their newborn babies. Peasant people just used whatever clean cloths or rags they had to swaddle their babies. And the shepherds went, oh, Immediate connection. I get, we get that. That's what our wives do. Also, shepherds, when they were preparing, Bethlehem wasn't far from Jerusalem. And a lot of the lambs that were prepared for the Passover were prepared in Bethlehem and taken to Jerusalem. When they got these lambs, because these lambs had to be perfect to be part of the Passover celebration. The shepherds would wrap the lambs in cloths and lay them in mangers so that they would remain unblemished. Jesus was wrapped in cloths and laid in a manger so he would remain unblemished to become the perfect sacrifice. The second thing they were told was that he would be lying in a manger. And do you know what that told them instantly? You're not going to find Jesus in some fancy pants house or some royal palace. You're going to find him in a peasant home because mangers were inside, not outside. You're going to find him in a peasant home, a simple two-room home just like ours. And do you know what? Those two things were enough for the shepherds to go, we're not going to be rejected. We can go. Let's go. Let's go and find out. It was enough to convince them. And when they got there, it was exactly as the angels had said. I missed reading the last verse of this passage, verse 20. The shepherds returned after they'd seen everything, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they'd been told. That word all included the quality of the hospitality 
that they saw that Mary and Joseph were getting. Included that. This is the Messiah. If they had come and found Jesus in a smelly stable with Joseph and Mary kicked out the back somewhere and no attention given to them, they would have come and gone, this is outrageous. Pick up your stuff and come with us. Our women will look after you. It's the culture of the day. And, and the honour of the entire village would have rested on their shoulders, that sense of responsibility and duty. This is beautiful, man. And this puts the final sparkle on the story for me. They didn't have to, but because what they saw when they got there, the hospitality that Joseph and Mary and Jesus were receiving was more than adequate. They couldn't offer anything better. They could go and they could start to tell everybody about it. And they left giving thanks. It's beautiful, eh? So, we busted the myths. And just like I described, that's tarnished object. We've brightened it up. We've polished it. It's now as it was. Maybe it's time to rewrite our Christmas plays, eh? And I think when we do that, the story's not going to be cheapened. I think the story's going to be enriched. So how to wrap this up? There's way more to this story. If you don't get that, oh, you go home with that ringing in your There's way more to this story than the myths that have been wrapped around this thing for 2,000 years. And this, but the staggering central truth is the same. Jesus came. That's the good news of great joy. But instead of the atmosphere of rejection and loneliness that our traditional telling portrays, He came to a loving, caring, honourable community. And we've got two things only that we have to do. And it's not go home and rip down your Christmas tree and decimate your nativities. The first thing we must do in response to this is accept the gift. For God, the greatest giver, so loved the greatest motivation. The world the greatest need that he gave the greatest act his only son the greatest gift that whoever the greatest opportunity believes in him will not die the greatest deliverance but have eternal life the greatest possession thanks for listening to this podcast Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.